You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. So I'd like to welcome everyone to Derms and Conditions Podcast, another what I know is going to be a fantastic episode. Uh, I don't even know where it's going to go because anytime I talk to this particular individual, Guy Webster, who I've had the good fortune of knowing for some time, sitting around tables at advisory boards, scientific meetings, different organizations, just exchanging a lot of discussion, usually about acne and rosacea, but also some other areas of dermatology. And Guy is an MD-PhD, fair amount of research background, but is also a clinician in the trenches and has been very involved with a lot of what we've come to know about acne and rosacea. He is clinical professor of dermatology at Jefferson Medical College, and he's in private practice in Hokesson, Delaware, I believe with his wife, who is a a clinical dermatologist. So when Guy doesn't know what to do, I'm sure he goes to his wife and says, what do I do here? (laughs) Guy, it's great to have you here this morning. Good to be here, Jim. So Guy, I've known you for quite a while, and you always have some interesting observations, what I call Guy-isms. A lot of times, (laughs) just just to make sure the world knows this, I'll go on a big long-winded soliloquy about something and I'll say, Guy, what do you think? And you'll say, yup. So that's the, <laughs> that'll be the one word answer. So I'm hoping that we can get more out of you today in the discussion. But I want to start by asking, thinking about where we are now, uh, let, let's start with acne. Is there anything looking back compared to what you know and believe now in acne that we've had to relearn where we really felt that something was was ironclad about the pathophysiology or about the management of acne some years back, but we've gone 180 degrees and, and we think about it differently. Is there anything that strikes a chord with you with that question? Yeah. Um, firstly, acne, our knowledge about acne, just like every other disease, is evolving. And when you look at psoriasis, Way back in the day when I was first learning dermatology, it was a cell cycle problem. The cell cycle was off, and that's what you had to fix. And then it was a cyclic A, cyclic G ratio problem, and if you fixed that, it would fix psoriasis. And they were both just dead wrong. They were epiphenomena uh, around hyperproliferation, which wasn't a keratinocyte disease. It was actually an immune disease. Who knew? except the data was always there. So in psoriasis, we had to do 180s multiple times. In acne, it hasn't been a bunch of 180s. It's been a bunch of refinements. Um, There have been, you know, errors like talking about free fatty acids being important. They weren't when they were hypothesized. The data in support of it was dumb, which is far too old to even have to trash. Just take my word. It was dumb data. And it was all phenomenology. But outside of the fact that free fatty acids aren't key, we know that P. acnes is a target of inflammation, and we know that P. acnes grows with the puberal bursts of androgens, and we know that the, the immune system is involved. And over the past, I don't know, 30 years, we've had layers of immune mechanisms described and shown to be active. I think the only mistake we have as a discipline is thinking that the very latest data is the only data, and all the stuff that went before is just not valid anymore, and none of that's true. In inflammation, there are wheels spinning within wheels. 
there are complement activating antibodies and there is a difference in immunity. And there's also inflammasomes and all the newer stuff. It's not like you have one and not the other. So I think that's the acne error. So is that why we, we have so much difficulty, even though we have different agents that we pick that, the way it's commonly said, are targeting one of the pillars of the pathophysiology, like like sebum or follicular hyperkeratosis, or now we call it C-acnes, reducing C-acnes activity or the amount of C-acnes. But we still, even we, we throw a, a combination of topical agents at the patient's, we still have difficulty getting these people clear unless we use isotretinoin right, in many cases. And why is that? Are there so many circuits involved that we can't just shut them all off? Yeah, that, that's it. And it's also the relative inadequacy of a lot of the topicals to do their job thoroughly. You know, isotretinoin does its job thoroughly. It turns off the sebaceous gland. And without that, acne stops. And spironolactone does its job pretty darn thoroughly if you're a woman and can take it by the same means, turning off the sebaceous gland indirectly. All the other stuff we have work well enough to get approved and are not bad. They just give an incomplete response. So the topical retinoids do unplug the follicle and do have any inflammatory activity, but it's not, for want of a better term, kick-ass unplugging of the follicle and anti-inflammatory activity. It just works some, and that's why we have to put multiple drugs together, topicals anyway, to get a response. So, so yeah. So, you know, when I think about it, you know, when we talk about a drug comes out or chemical comes out that we're using to treat something like acne, and we talk about the mechanism, I think in general, people think it's like a light switch, like that drug is doing that 100%, but it may not have the magnitude. It may be the right pathway. It just doesn't have the magnitude of effect against that pathway by the time it goes through being manufactured and applied to the skin and all the other changes. So we might be on, on the right path. We just don't have the right strength, right, of, of what that drug needs to do. But let's talk a little bit about antibiotics because we've been involved with with talking about antibiotics with different groups, and one that you we did the scientific panel multiple times and had hours and hours of discussion. Where do you feel antibiotics fit in now, knowing what we know right now about antibiotics, the pros and cons in the management of acne? I'll start with topical, and then we can go to oral. Uh, topical antibiotics, if you mean erythro or clinda, I find them pretty useless, and the data supports that. They worked darn well when they first came out in the 80s, but bugs very quickly learned resistance. And what had been a very fantastic drug, topical clindamycin, is now almost inactive and needs other drugs with it to do anything. Uh, other drugs like benzoyl peroxide, to which you don't get resistance, remains pretty darn effective, and the trick is getting patients to use it aggressively. And if they do, this over-the-counter drug is pretty wonderful. You can accomplish an awful lot. Oral antibiotics, different story. You know, the goal is reducing propionobacterium, or cutobacterium acnes. And uh, if you do reduce the target of inflammation, the acne does get better. The oral drugs, especially the tetracyclines, 
are anti-inflammatory in and of themselves, but that doesn't explain all that they do. They also reduce the bug. The problem is you don't want to have somebody on oral antibiotics forever because of the effects that it might have on the rest of their bacterial flora. An aside with that is nobody's really shown problems from doxycycline long-term. You know, none of us want to do it, but we've all had patients we can't get off it and can't get on an alternative, and those folks do okay. Uh, not saying I encourage that, but it's at the same time, you know, not the kiss of death for the patient either. Right. But I agree. But, but what's your thought about the concept now talking about broad-spectrum tetracyclines versus narrow-spectrum tetracyclines? We have saracycline, which spares the gram-negatives more so, at least based on the, the, microbio the static microbiologic data. Uh, do, you, do you see any difference there, or does that sort of fall on deaf ears with you? No, it doesn't fall on deaf ears at all. It's a good effort, and it's better than broad spectrum. Um, nothing wrong with the drug that's not wrong with other antibiotics, and it's better than many. Uh, narrow spectrum is a good thing. You still want to restrict usage to when you truly need it. But uh, no, I, I'm not, I, I have no beef with that drug. So uh, let's go into the clinic now. And so Guy Webster... Modern-day Guy Webster, 2023, has a patient come in. It uh, could be a, a teenager or, you, you know, younger, post-teenage, male or female, right? And they have acne. They, they've had it for quite a while, but they haven't used anything for a while. And they have, you know, papules and pustules and some, you know, closed comedones, comedonal lesions, diffusely on the face. You grade it in your mind as moderate severity. They don't have any nodules, maybe one nodule. And so where do you start? You know, what do you think yeah. is the best starting point? And when you make the decision to go to an oral antibiotic, do you full cord press topical first, or do you start with an oral antibiotic from the beginning? Long question, but it's, and it's, it's really an important one because people yeah, still yeah. have challenges with it. Yeah. Long question, and I'll have an annoyingly long answer. First thing I do is um, realize that I hate stepwise therapy. The idea that you have to fail one drug to go on to another is the exact opposite of using the expertise of a master clinician who pretty much knows what it takes to get somebody better when you lay eyes on them. So down with stepwise therapy, try to hit the nail on the head the first time. It's also cheaper if you try to hit the nail on the head the first time because you're not going through months of failed therapies that accomplish nothing for the money. The second question is, you really need to ask the patient how much they care about getting better, because a lot of teenagers don't. You know, there's as many ones who say, this acne is ruining my life, and I'm not coming out of my room and not going to school, as are who say, what? What? I, I don't see any acne. This is no big deal. Everybody gets it. So you got to decide who's driving the visit. Is the patient or is it the parent? And you got to decide what the patient would put up with in therapy. Women don't mind topicals as much as men do. Most guys will look at you and lie right to you and say, yeah, I'll use that topical every day, just like you said, except they don't. So having said all of that, I lean towards jumping on something hard, say with oral antibiotics and topicals, 
making sure they understand that the topical will allow me to stop the oral if they, um, if they really use the topical, and also tell them I'm not going to keep them on the oral forever. So if you want to get the real benefit from what I've given you, use the freaking topic along with it. And having said that, typically I will do benzyl peroxide retinoid combo plus doxycycline at full strength. Because why not? And so uh, do you? are there any other topicals that you integrate in? Well, let's uh, Okay, the patient comes back at eight weeks um, and you have them on doxycycline 150, 200 milligrams a day and a benzoyl peroxide retinoid combo, and you sense that they're using it, right? Right. And, and you're at eight weeks, and they're better, but, you know, just not where you thought they should be? Or when do you decide that that regimen you just said is, a not, is, is doing the job or not doing the job? At what time point, would you say? At a, at a month or six weeks, they may not be all the way better, but you'll know if they're in the right road or not at that point. So if they come back at eight weeks and, you know, they're not saying much about it, you know, they're not so great, but, you know, they're going to they're gonna hang in there with you. You're lucky enough this, this, yeah. this person is going to hang in there with you. Would you make an adjustment or would you push further with that regimen that you started for a while? Assuming the patient and family is willing for me to go to the next step in strength, I will go. I will do that right then because why screw around? And I lay the groundwork for going up in strength at the first visit. I say we're going to do X, Y, and Z, but there's always Accutane or there's always Spironolactone. We don't want to use it now, but it may be the best thing for you. We'll know in a month or two. So a month or two has happened. They're not all the way better. And I ask them if they're satisfied. And if they're not, then if they're a girl, they go on spironolactone PDQ. And if they're a guy, we start the isotretinoin waltz. So speaking of isotretinoin, you know, I know we've worked on on a lot of different projects. And one with isotretinoin with formulations that were pre-solubilized in fat, where you don't have to worry about the dietary yeah. intake versus ones that are not. And now we have a micronized version, which is absorbed even better with a little bit of a lower dose. How important do you think the dietary aspects are with isotretinoin? They are very important for drug absorption. Uh, for clinical management, they're important, but if you dose according to the clinical response, then you can dose around whatever vagaries of absorption the patients give you. You know, how do we take care of acne patients with isotretinoin all those years before we had a lipid intolerant version? Well, we use clinical judgment and raise the dosage. Parenthetically, my dose I tend to keep lower because I don't think you need to reach that mythical dosage that uh, was published in a paragraph in a paper about something else that has become dogma. Uh, you know, You're talking about the 120 to 150? Yeah, that's fiction. Kilogram that, that was a bunch of, bunch of well-meaning guys and a bottle of wine, and that's exactly how it was because I talked to some of them. And they talked about what they thought was true. But it wasn't a study. There wasn't any data. It was just accumulated experience of that time. And also remember, it was a, it was a form of consensus, which means 
that they said the one thing they could all agree on, not the one thing they believed was true, yep. which varied yep. for every one of them. That's a very important definition of consensus. You know, you see, you see a list of authors on the paper, and then you go up to one of them and, you know, don't assume that they agreed with ev every aspect, right. you know, passionately. They, that's what they agreed to together, but that wouldn't have been their individual choice, some of the statements that are being made. That's, that's, that's so important. But my understanding and, and by, is- by the way, that, that's, if you ever get sued and they cite a consensus conference against you, that's the argument. But anyway. Right. That well, you've got to keep that in mind because those are some of the realities uh, that yeah. do happen to some of us at times. Um, but when he, with isotretinoin, I mean, I'm thinking back to a paper by John Strauss where they looked at different doses: 0 0.1, yeah. 0 0.5, one milligram, uh -huh. kilogram per day, and pretty much everybody cleared after four or five months. Some of them a couple of months after they stopped the isotretinoin. Um, yeah, and they pretty much all of them cleared, but there was a difference in relapse. So in my mind with isotretinoin, I want the patient to have the best chance of getting sustained clearance for as long as possible the first time I treat them with the isotretinoin, realizing if they're younger teenagers, they're more likely going to need to repeat it later anyway, um, which is what the data seems to suggest to me, but I want to give them the best shot of the longest clearance. So isn't that the difference when you're talking about the amount that they're actually systemically absorbing and why if they're not taking an older isotretinoin, a conventional type based on Accutane's pharmacokinetics, they, well, they, they have a better, more of a chance of relapsing later than if it's pre-solubilized and they don't have to worry about fat intake. Is that true, or have I been uh, drinking Kool-Aid? <laughs> no, it, the problem is it all is based on really flimsy footing. That Strauss paper was basically the phase three study for isotretinoin's approval, which was a hell of a long time ago. We didn't really understand about diet. We certainly didn't understand that the youngest acne patients who need isotretinoin are the worst and are going to need retreatment. And I think anymore, I don't know if it's, if it's all dosage. You know, who are you going to give more to? Somebody who's young and not responding or a more compliant older person whose disease is responding to the isotretinoin? You know, right. I, I think the data is so muddled that we really need a, a study that will never happen because, um, it would be very hard to get it through an IRB. Right, exactly. Uh, I, I know why I think absorption is important, and I push getting patients to take it that way. But I don't know that higher is necessarily better. And when you look at that graph that I know you have in the back of your head like I do, looking at number of doses, number of times ret retreated versus age, it's the youngest ones who need to be retreated the most. Right. Not perhaps the ones you'd expect, which are the 18-year-old who looks horrible. They respond and stay responded. It's the young ones who don't. So I, I think it all needs reevaluating. But dose is important. So, Guy, you know, you remember when you went back into dermatology, and I believe you had a, a fairly robust research career. Of, yeah. You know, but now, now you're in. If Guy Webster was coming out of his residency today, Right. 
what do you think your course would be? What direction oh, would you like to go? Well, firstly, I'm really happy with my career. I've had fun. I've done good things. I've been fairly compensated. But coming out today and going into academics like I did for 15 years, I don't know that young academic docs get treated fairly. There's way too many suits above them who are worthless turds who don't contribute to medicine in any way, but but sap, they do sap the life out of it with their salaries and their expenses. And when you look at it, what a young doc gets paid versus in private practice and what they have to put up with, you know, you go into medicine to practice medicine, not to do all this crap that they ask you to. So I have no idea what I do, Jim. Um, I don't know. I, 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 there's no doubt. There's no doubt to what your opinion is. That's for sure, and that's one of the yeah. things I, I really like about you. You don't mince words. I, I try not to mince words, also. But how about something that you truly believed was fact in managing? Doesn't have to be acne. It could be rosacea, psoriasis, another disease. That now you look at differently compared to what you believed for many years, based on your understanding. Now, did you have you had a one eighty? In any particular areas? No, you know, I entered Durham with an immunologic bent that all of our diseases are either infectious or neoplastic or uh, immunologic, and therefore psoriasis and eczema and acne to a large degree are all immunologic diseases, and we treat them by, you know, blunting the response or removing the target. None of that has changed. I think of eczema the same way. I have a much better appreciation for the barrier, and I work hard to protect that. Uh, better appreciation for the barrier in rosacea. And I'm beginning to appreciate the mast cell in rosacea as the very key to all of it, which I had no position on 20 years ago, so I couldn't have gone to 180 from it. But it's a certainly new direction for me that I think is central in rosacea. We didn't have the means to evaluate the mast cell years ago like we do now, so it's really emerged as being a, a major player. Any tips you know, for managing e either acne or rosacea um, that you find yourself utilizing regularly in the clinic in you know, just a couple of pearls? Do you have any? Yeah, ma managing rosacea especially in women who take cosmetic claims seriously, most of them are using four or five products that are the worst thing they could possibly do for them. They're using astringents and exfoliants and anti-aging stuff and this and that, and they're all beating hell out of their skin, which just makes it harder to treat the rosacea. Outside of asking for a list of all the junk they use, uh, you can also ask them, do they sting when they put something on their face? And if they are a stinger, it means their barrier is weak enough to allow things to penetrate and annoy their uh, nerves. So that that's the 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 big rosacea tip. And then all the drugs, you know, they, they all kind of work in their own way. Some work better than others. Um. So yeah. So, Guy, you know, I'm from New York, and we, we have some friends from Chicago. I think of you as being from the Philly area, which I think more about cheesesteaks, but we all love pizza. So I'm going to ask you your preference. 
do you like the typical New York thin crust pizza or the Chicago deep dish pizza or both? Well, you know, do you like steak or do you like pork? I like both steak and pork. But I don't think the classic Chicago deep dish pizza is a pizza in any sense. It's more like a pot pie without the top. <laughs> and, you know, sure, there are nice things in there, but it ain't no pizza. And so, yeah, I, I like a good New York street pizza. Yeah. You know, you, you could walk down the street with a New York pizza. You can't do that. with the, no. You have to sit down and get into the goo with the deep dish pizza. Right. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't walk away from a Chicago pizza, but given my druthers. You have, always have a different way of looking at things, and I, I always enjoy it. Guy, it was great talking to you today. I appreciate your time, and I look forward to seeing you. It's been too long since I've actually seen you in person, so I look it forward to seeing you. It has been too long. Meetings are up, and we need to get together. Yes, we do, and I have some ideas for some future projects, so we'll hopefully like be that. getting in touch. Great. Thanks a lot. You have a great day. Pleasure, Jim. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at podcasts at fred.health. And most importantly, if you like this episode, subscribe to the Derms and Conditions podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Thanks for joining us.